Welcome to On Balance. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. I'll be your guide as we explore the stories of today with the personalities impacting tomorrow. Welcome to On Balance. Let's go down memory lane, everybody. Uh, This is, you know, look, I'm not going to date myself, but Mr. Rogers was definitely um, a part of my life, like so many children and families um, throughout the years of generations. And there's this fantastic and what I would say is this wondrous book, and I'm sort of pulling in, uh, you know, a part of the title of the book, but there's this fantastic book, When You Wonder, You're Learning. Mr. Rogers, uh, Enduring Lessons for Raising Creative, Curious, and Caring Kids. And we have the privilege of speaking with one of the co-authors, um, Ryan Rudzeski. And Ryan, you and I met a couple of weeks ago at an education conference, and you just had this very engaging personality, and it totally fit why you and your co-author, Greg Bear, uh, took this project on. I f- it felt like Someone was going to take this on. They had to have, there was a bit of an, there's just something about you and the energy that you had to solve sort of this. What is it about Mr. Rogers that I guess evokes this feeling, this, you know, sort of back to that, you know, maybe an era, a time of, of thinking about sort of how we engage with people at what level, what's the impact and how do we understand the community around us? And, and that to me, if I could encapsulate or do it, even just a, a shred of justice would be you know, my sort of experience of when you wonder, you're learning this, you know, this openness uh, where the horizon just keeps sort of expanding in that regard. So look, that is quite a preamble to you as an author um, and as a writer as well and a reporter. Um, take us back. Why why this project? I mean, I would imagine as a writer, there are lots of different opportunities that sort of, sort of flash by you um, that hit your desk. But for whatever reason, this was a, <laughs> this was a topic uh, that interested you and your co-author. So take me back to that time. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for the incredibly generous introduction. That, that really means a lot to hear. And, and you're right. There are any number of things that, uh, that, that cross my and my co-author's desk. And why did this particular project grab us in the way it did? I think it starts uh, with the fact that both of us are children of Western Pennsylvania. So like Mr. Rogers himself, we were born here, you know, we moved to different parts of the country for a while, and eventually we found our, our respective ways home. But we grew up with this deep emotional connection to Fred because he really was our neighbor. You know, if you down the street, right from where I'm sitting now is where he went to church. Um, down the street, a little bit further than that is the studio where he made the neighborhood. Uh, you would go out to restaurants and you would see him there with his wife. Um, you know, Mr. Rogers really was our neighbor, even the houses, you know, in the beginning of Mr. Rogers neighborhood, those look just like the houses that we grew up in and just like the houses that we live in now. Um, so there's that emotional investment in Fred. Absolutely. Um, but as we started to dig into this project, we realized there was so much more to that attachment than, than either of us had, had realized. So I, I'm a former educator. I taught fourth and fifth grade in Louisiana. Uh, my co-author, Greg Bear, has been leading the Grable Foundation for 16 years. And, and Grable is a private family foundation that supports um, children and youth, mostly in the greater Pittsburgh area, a little bit in North Carolina, too. And so much of our work um, together over the past few years has been translating findings from the learning sciences. What are we learning about learning itself? What are the conditions and the methods that are most conducive to learning? And we've realized, especially over the past couple of years, this trend toward when learning scientists talk about learning, 
they're talking in very Fred-like ways. You know, we expected lots of charts and graphs and, and very specific pedagogical data. And that's not exactly what we found when we started going to sci our learning science conferences and, and reading these papers and talking to these brilliant scientists, both here in Pittsburgh and, and beyond. Um, you know, they're asking questions like, how do we make sure the children feel safe? How do we create that openness that you just referred to? How do we make sure, you know, that in wherever children are learning, whether it's in classrooms or in living rooms or in libraries or museums, how do we make sure that they are loved and capable of loving? These people, these scientists sounded like script, uh, script writers in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. And that's when we realized we had a book idea on our hands. You took that idea, so that sort of the light bulb, the collective light bulb goes off. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I mean, you, you were so eloquent in sort of painting the picture of where you live and the connection to Fred Rogers and this sort of thing. But was there ever this point in time where you and Greg maybe collectively, you know, together or, or individually, you sort of say, wow, that, I mean, the responsibility of that. I mean, it's one thing if maybe I tackled it and I'm in a different state because I don't have that emotional connection to the community and what he meant. But my goodness, it feels like an entirely different layer of responsibility to then say, this is fascinating. Oh, and by the way, let's write a book about it. <laughs> there's, this, there's this great story. First of all, that's a fantastic question. It's not one that we've gotten. And it's not one that, you know, I didn't anticipate grappling with this, but we absolutely did. Um, there's this great story. Um, of Tom Hanks visiting Pittsburgh when he was just getting ready to, to shoot A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. He was going to play Fred Rogers and he's, he's in this hotel elevator in downtown Pittsburgh. And a person walks in, just a random guy on the street. And rather than being starstruck that he's in an elevator with Tom Hanks, he says something like, you know, we take Mr. Rogers really seriously around here. <laughs> so you better not screw it up, Tom Hanks. And, uh, I did feel, I think Greg and I both felt that, the weight of that responsibility. You know, the first thing we did when we had this idea was call um, Fred's wife, Joanne Rogers, who was still living at the time, to first of all say like, you know, does this sound right to you? Do you think we're on the right track? Um, is this something, is this a book that you would be proud of, that you think your husband would be proud of? And the answer right away was a resounding yes. Joanne was an amazing champion for our book. She actually wrote the foreword. I, I think it's the best part of the book. But we also realized, you know, as we talked with Roger's colleagues, many of whom are still living, many of whom are still living in Pittsburgh and doing amazing things post, you know, post neighborhood. Um, they are just as Fred-like as Fred was. They are just as generous. They are just as selfless. And they are incredibly careful, as we came to learn, about the ways in which they steward Fred's legacy, because this is their life's work, too. And they want to see that legacy stewarded ways that are healthy in ways that are accurate in ways that are productive and helpful to teachers and parents. And so once we saw how careful they were being, and once we knew we had the blessing of, of Joanne Rogers, yes, that weight, it was heavy. Um, not only because we both love Mr. Rogers, um, not only because our families all love Mr. Rogers and our community all loves Mr. Rogers, but when you realize how much work and how much intention Fred put into every single scene, making sure that he was giving kids at every moment something of the absolute highest quality. Well, then you can't write about Fred without trying to do that yourself. Um, and so, yeah, we took that responsibility very seriously. It's something that, you know, the book is came out just a year ago this week, and it's something we still take just as seriously as we talk about Fred to audiences all over the country. 
Let's talk about the creative process, because I think it would be remiss if I didn't ask this uh, for those young people out there that want to write and, and, you know, integrate story into their, their professional pursuits. But when you have something of passion and you have got an emotional connection, did you find for you in specifically, were there challenging times where you, as you were writing that you you almost had to correct yourself and make sure that you, in essence, weren't, not that you would be pandering at all in that regard, but that you wanted to kind of be, I would imagine that there was sort of this objective of being down the middle so that it didn't read as you were just paying homage to and sort of this icon locally that you had. I mean, how did you sort of balance the reporter and the writer in you uh, and sort of the creative side of you in accurately applying what you had learned from the researchers to what you had experienced as a young person? That's a great question. Yeah. And there were moments where the emotion of, of learning about Fred and what he did and how he treated people was almost overwhelming. It was almost paralyzing as a writer. It was almost, you know, how dare we even begin to convey the gravity of what this man meant to so many people, uh, including us, including the two of us. And then there's also the journalistic side of like, well, I have to fact check everything. So does that mean I have to ruin the magic of Fred by, by finding out, is this stuff really true? And in deconstructing what Fred was doing in the neighborhood, are we going to somehow um, lessen the magic of it? That, I think that was a real concern. And, and even in, in small sort of craft things that we had to think about in the book, um, when we got the first draft back from the publisher, um, all the citations were footnoted. And in a normal book, I, I wouldn't care so much about that. But I was like, this is a book about Mr. Rogers. It needs to feel warm. We can't have all these footnotes all over. So little things like that, I think, were governed by the sort of emotional uh, attachment to Fred. But what we found again and again was that in deconstructing the neighborhood and trying to figure out what the methodology behind what Fred was doing actually was and trying to elucidate that method methodology in ways that would be helpful and accessible to readers, it actually had the opposite effect. I, I, I admire the neighborhood now on so many more levels than I did you know, as a kid or even as a casual sort of adult appreciator of Mr. Rogers. Um, I, this goes back to what I said earlier. When you realize the level of work and the level of intention that went into every single scene of the neighborhood, you know, down to what sweater Fred was wearing that particular day, down to the syntax of a single line and a single song, um, down to the ways, the choices he made about how the physical set itself was designed. How was the placement of this thing here going to make children feel versus if we place it over here? Rather than learning about all that lessening the magic. I think it just, I'm even more in awe of Fred now than I was then because he made it look so easy. I was going to say, I mean, that was, wasn't that the beauty of what he did was that yes. I would imagine most took it for granted because it just, it just flowed. I mean, it was like sort of water. I mean, it just, it, it was fluid. It, it made sense, I think for the different ages that would watch. Um, and there was a, like, there were layers that I think that you probably stumbled upon that we take for granted but it's, you know, getting down to the level of a child, like the change of frame, even in what you saw, that always has struck me that 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 had to be intentional. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there are there are so many things. So one one scene that jumps to mind. So in earlier episodes of Mr. Rogers Neighborhood, 
his famous TV living room, which we all can probably picture with the, the blue walls and, and picture picture up and, and the door that he comes to. That actually is, that room is yellow in early years of the neighborhood. And eventually they decided to paint it blue. And actually there's been all sorts of science that's come out even in the years since Fred has passed away about the power of the color blue and what it might be able to do for human creativity. So Fred paints the walls blue, but he doesn't just do it and then go on with the show. You know, there he actually dedicates a whole episode, him and Mr. McFeely paint the walls. <laughs> and so the children can know that it used to be one thing and now it's another. And we're not going to surprise you with that. We want to show you the process of how one of, of how things change. And there are several scenes in that episode of Fred literally sitting there watching paint dry. And that is Fred giving children space to just be quiet to just be, you know, something that kids certainly don't get very often and they certainly don't get on television very often. It was the kind of thing was once you realize that every choice Fred made was grounded in some sort of scientific principle, something from the learning sciences, whether psychology, uh, behavioral science uh, or more, you start to see it everywhere. You know, you realize, oh, when Fred did something that might look a little off to adults, he's doing it for a very specific reason. And when you compound that, he did that for 28 minutes, some 951 times. That is a, a lot of work. That is a lot of work. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, it, gosh, I mean, look, I think things happen for a reason. There's timing uh, of when things sort of come before us or in front of our eyes that we get to experience. And it just feels like this book is incredibly timely uh, in our country. And I, I wonder if, I have no doubt that it is, it has struck you. This is not, I am not <laughs> revealing some great secret here, but when we think about wonder, we think about education, we think about how do we provide support for teachers and the relationship that an educator has with a student and this, this go between in this interpersonal exchange, it, it feels sometimes not to be cynical because this is a very optimistic book in this regard, but it does feel a little bit like with all the challenges that we are facing in society with a lot tackling some really big questions that the oxygen is almost being sort of, you know, taken from the room. Sure. Uh, and, and that then makes me think about the ability to wonder, right. The freedom to watch paint dry, to give the space, to think about how you want to participate as a young person and, or the role that your, your trusted educator plays in that regard. Who do you, who would you, and that, with that is the, is the backdrop. I mean, who should be reading this book? Because I will hear back channel from educators that, you know, are, are battling a number of, of challenging issues and they care deeply about what they do. Um, but I do find that they're looking from some inspiration outside of the four walls that they work in every day. Sure, sure. So it, it's interesting. We released this book in the middle of the pandemic, obviously, and, and things have been up and down since, since last April, uh, especially for educators. And as we've gotten out into the world and, and, and shared this book with not only educators, but also with, with judges and with healthcare professionals uh, and with all these folks who aren't exactly the intended audience, which is parents and teachers and anyone who works with kids, the response and a specific word that we've gotten from every demographic is one that we never anticipated. And that word is healing. And I don't think that that is necessarily a testament to what Greg and I are saying or doing. I think it's absolutely a testament to what Fred did and the lessons um, that Fred spent, you know, almost 40 years on television trying to convey, all of which I think can be distilled into one sentence that he said again and again and again, which is 
I like you just the way you are. I think that is a healing message. I think it's a healing message, not only for teachers to hear, not only for their students to hear, but also for all these other people, for judges who have seen families uh, evicted, for healthcare professionals who have had the worst two years of their entire professional careers. Um, to hear that phrase, I like you just the way you are, I do think that's healing. And it's healing for Greg and I to be able to go out into the world and, and to share it and sort of bring it back to life in our, in our own way. Let's put you in the elevator instead of Tom Hanks. Um, <laughs> what, what would, if there was a compliment that you would receive, not, not that this is about ego, but it's about sort of the passion of the project in that regard. What, what have you heard um, that has been the most meaningful outside of so maybe that healing component that maybe has changed you when you think about just the power of the, it's, isn't it funny how we can be talking about SpaceX and traveling and going to the, the ends of the ends of the universe. And yet the power of letters put together to make words, put together to make sentences and paragraphs, right. And, and a book, how that can impact really how people feel and think uh, and Absolutely. interact. And so if you're in that elevator, what has changed you in feedback that you've gotten that you would have never anticipated? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I think two things. Anytime I hear from a teacher that this was helpful, this is what I needed to hear, that means the world to me because I've been in their shoes and because I know how hard it is. And I know just from reading how hard the last few years have been. So when we talk to teachers who, you know, it's a Wednesday night and, and we're talking to them on Zoom in a book study, the fact that they found the book helpful, useful enough to want to go out of their way on top of all the other things that are going on in their lives to say, thank you, or to ask questions they want to know more about the book. That always means a lot. But the other day, somebody just said to, to us, we had just finished a lecture um, at a college outside of Pittsburgh. And he came up to us and he said, thank you. This book made me want to be a better person. And I think the reason that means so much to hear is because writing this book made me want to be a better person too, right? Um, it has, we can't put a book out into the world about Fred Rogers and not try to walk the walk because so much of what made Fred so magical, what he did on television was just half of it. I think the reason we revere Fred so much is that people always ask, well, was Fred really like that? And the fact that the answer is yes, maybe he's <laughs> one of the only people who's ever walked the earth that the answer is yes, what you saw on television was not an act. He really was like that all the time. That is inspiring to people. And that makes me want to be a better person. And so Fred walked the walk. I feel like I have to too. And the fact that other people are, are reading the book and taking that away, um, not in a way that attacks them, but in a way that inspires them to want to live up to the example that Fred left. Um, that feels good. And, and I hope that that, you know, you're talking about what the world needs. I think the world needs more Fred. So if, if our book can play a small part in making that happen, then I think that we'll have done our job. Let's take a, a, a pivot a little bit. I, I think, and you are the expert in this conversation about this part of it. I get the sense that he was far more progressive for his time than we would ever give him credit for. Maybe just because we just don't think about it. 
But in a time where we, we are thinking about the ways in which we treat others that may or may not look like us or uh, have the same cultural practices, and you, you kind of get where I'm going with this. Could you share a little bit just about how progressive he was? Because I feel like that is something that I think we should honor, we should celebrate that he was far ahead of his time and that Fred Rogers today would be very applicable. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he would. And I, I actually think Fred would be a little controversial today because I think as a, uh, you know, mainstream society is much more conscious of, of issues like this than we have been in the past. Um, and I think, so when Fred, he was, he was very intentional again about what kinds of images he was broadcasting in the neighborhood and what kind of images he was putting out there and all the sort of side publications that he put out there. So Fred brought uh, in the 1970s, Mayor Maggie, uh, who is a, uh, uh, a black woman. She is a mayor in the neighborhood of make believe. He wanted to show kids a black woman in a position of power. And it's the neighborhood. You know, everything Fred did, you're right, he made it feel just right. And so I don't think kids really questioned it. And in fact, they grew up thinking that was a normal thing to see, which is, I think, a healthy thing for the world, especially for kids to see. Um, when he put out books, he was very conscious of um, sort of stereotypes that he was or was not reinforcing. So he had this whole series called My First Experiences. And it was to help kids get ready to do things for the first time, like go on airplanes or, or go to the doctor. And he was always fighting with the publisher about, okay, who are the people that we're putting in these photos? Can children see themselves in these professions? Can they see themselves as flight attendants? Can they see themselves as doctors? Can they see themselves as all these things that maybe they traditionally don't see themselves as. He was trying to bring down some of these stereotypes, trying to bring down some of these barriers. He was absolutely progressive in terms of who he was representing on public television. Um, and he spoke about it so plainly, you know, and in such an inviting way that I think everybody just kind of came to love the world that Fred built and which in many ways is much more preferable to the world that, that we all <laughs> live in. Um, and I will say that the people who make uh, the sort of new productions in the Fred universe right now. So Daniel Tiger's neighborhood is very popular. They take just the same amount of care with this kind of thing that Fred did. You know, they have advisors talking about, well, do we get this little girl's hair right? Um, is she combing it in a way that a girl from this culture might comb her hair? They have advisors from those cultures, from those backgrounds, and they're making sure that they are doing it right too. And I don't know how much television is, is getting created with that kind of care and that kind of thoughtfulness. And I think Fred, um, he really created the blueprint for that. Let's close with this. I'm going to have you speak on his behalf. So I know that's a, that's a large task in this regard, but <laughs> do you think of him as a, as a scientist, a learning scientist or, or an artist? And, mm. and I think of him maybe more as an artist, but I would really value your, your thought now that you've gone through this process. Yeah. I mean, my, my answer to that is, is yes. I mean, yes, both. Um, I don't think so I, I sort of see Fred as a sort of triad. There's, there's Fred the artist, absolutely. There is Fred the learning scientist. And there's also Fred the philosopher. 
you know, Fred was a, a trained minister, an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church. Uh, he was an extraordinarily gifted uh, pianist. In fact, he went and got his undergraduate degree in music composition at Rollins College. Uh, then, of course, he went off to New York and he learned the art of television. And then he worked with some of the world's brightest psychologists and pediatricians and psychiatrists in the world, all of whom happened to be working in Pittsburgh at the exact same time. These are folks like Benjamin Spock and Eric Erickson and, and his mentor, Margaret McFarland. So without, the, without Fred the theologian and without Fred the artist and without Fred the scientist coming together in this beautiful place called the neighborhood of make-believe, um, I don't know that we would have had Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. I think you needed all three of those components. And, and it was one of those things Fred used to talk about in speeches about showing students, telling music students about the sound that only they could make. You know, they're all playing the same song, but not everybody can make the same sound. Everybody has their own individual, you know, intonation and way of attacking a string. And Fred made a sound that only Fred could make. And it's a sound that so many people love. So many people are following his footsteps in their own authentic ways, but Fred was an original. And I think it's because he was an artist and he was a philosopher and he was a scientist. Well, look, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm biased in this regard after getting a chance to sit down with you in person, but I, I think you are a fantastic uh, ambassador and, and representative voice of uh, Mr. Rogers and his family and what it means to understand the triad in that regard and what his contributions have meant to society then and now. I want to make sure that people can find not only you uh, and Greg, but also the book. Where should they go, Ryan? Sure. So you can find out more about the book at whenyouwonder.org. Um, there are links to order it there. You can also contact Greg and I through the uh, submission forms there. We're always happy to, to chat. So please feel free to reach out. If you have questions about Fred, you have questions about the book, um, we're always available to you. Well, you're a very engaging professional who I sense is um, perpetually curious, and we are all the better for it. So Ryan uh, Rudzeski, thank you very much for your efforts. Uh, please share that with Greg. And I do encourage people to check out where, when you wonder, excuse me, you're learning Mr. Rogers Enduring Lessons for Raising Creative, Curious, Caring Kids. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. This concludes another chapter of On Balance. Connect with me via LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Dr. Rod Berger.